Well, hi everyone. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here at Union Church in San Clemente, and uh, thank you for tuning in. This is our third week of uh, getting you the sermon this way, and uh, really appreciate you tuning in, and I hope this is helpful and edifying for you. Um, if you are a parent of young kids, I want to make sure you know we have kids' resources. should be on the link uh, below this sermon, and you can go ahead and print those out. Uh, download the worksheets and lessons. I would really encourage you to work through those with your kids. I know we're not gathering right now as a church on Sunday mornings, but really want to um, still be practicing family worship. And so for you as a family, I just want to encourage you as mom and dad, uh, listen to the sermon. Uh, if you have kids, um, get together with them, sing some songs and um, pull out those lessons and, and work through those with your children. And I hope that that will be edifying and helpful for them and for you and for you as a family as a whole. As well, all the content that we're going over today, the points of the sermon, discussion questions, uh, all the verse references and that sort of thing, you can find those um, for download as well on our website. And I would encourage you to download those, work through the questions um, as a family. Uh, those are the questions we go over in the union groups during the week. Um, as well, you can take notes on there, and it has all the verse references. So we, we've got a lot of scripture to cover today. We're only covering a few verses in First Peter, but we're looking at some Old Testament prophecies. And so we have a few verses that we're going to go back and look at uh, more than normal. So I just want to tell you ahead of time, don't worry about taking notes on all that. It's all in your bulletin. So you can just receive that, and you can look up the verses later and study them later on if you'd like. Well, this morning or evening or whatever you're watching, uh, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we will be covering verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to pray for our time together and then we will jump into God's Word. Father God, we thank you for a chance to get together uh, digitally in this venue. We thank you that we still get to open your word. We thank you that we still get to receive from your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, Old Testament and New Testament, and all of it, Jesus, reveals you. All of it tells us who we are, and all of it points us to you and salvation in you and calls us to love you and respond to your grace and your love in our lives. And so I just pray, Lord, that uh, today, as we receive your word, that that would be our response, that we'd respond in rejoicing in the salvation that you've given us and in love for our Savior and, and worship of our God. Help us to do that, Holy Spirit, as we receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I was gifted one of those DNA packs. Um, it was 23andMe, that, that sort of thing. Um, it was a different company, but um, it was one of those DNA things, you spit in it, you send it off to the lab, and uh, they get back to you with all your DNA results, and you log in online, and you can see, breaks up your DNA, you're part Irish, part Scottish, part English, part Greek, that was kind of mine, Western Europe, and then a little bit of uh, Mediterranean, and they show you where your ancestors are from, and, and likely when they came over here, when, when Scottish migrated over here in uh, large numbers, and it kind of shows you some of the history of your ancestors. And uh, I think there's some value in that. I, I like history and I like knowing origins and thinking about origins and, and, and figuring all that stuff out. And there's, there's something fun about that and intriguing. And it kind of um, fulfills uh, part of my curiosity. And uh, maybe it does for yours as well. I think there is something valuable about understanding our origins. And as humans, there's something in us that is really interested in in knowing our origins and understanding our origins. 
Well, even more important than our biological origins is our spiritual origin. Right? Where, where does our faith come from? Um, how was it passed down? How was it handed down? What's the history of our faith? And there's something really valuable and critical uh, and important and necessary about understanding our spiritual history and our spiritual origins and our spiritual lineage. And as we get into 1 Peter this morning, that's where Peter begins. He, he's going to draw a straight line from the Old Testament to the New Testament and from Old Testament Christians to New Testament Christians. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter begins this section by reflecting on everything he's just written about. He says concerning this salvation, right? In the first nine verses of Peter, he's told us, you're part of a new family. You've been born again to a living hope, right? With God as your father, with Christians as your brothers and sisters, Jesus as your savior and elder brother. You were foreknown by God, loved by God. And as you were saved, you loved him in response. And this is who you are now as a Christian. This is a family, the family that you've been made a part of, the father that you have the inheritance that you have, right? And now in verse 10, he says, concerning all of that, concerning this salvation, and he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What he's talking about here, when he says prophets, he's talking about those who wrote the Old Testament. Right? Prophecy being a gift of speaking, proclaiming God's word. In the Old Testament, God would give his word to individuals and they would preach it on his behalf, so you read Jeremiah and you see some of his sermons and he says things like, thus saith the Lord. Right? He's literally a mouthpiece of God speaking God's words to the people that God wants him to preach to. And then some of the prophets, they wrote down God's word. And, and, and that's what Peter's saying. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who wrote scripture in the Old Testament, they actually wrote about your salvation. And he here is, is connecting for us the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's connecting for us Old Testament Christians to New Testament Christians. Right? He's drawing us into solidarity with the Old Testament saints. That we as New Testament Christians on this side of the cross, that, that those in the Old Testament, they're not part of a whole different religion. They're not part of a, you know, some totally holy other thing. Right? That the stories in the New Testament aren't all disconnected and no longer for use and have no bearing on our life, but rather we're connected right, as spiritual family to Old Testament Christians. All right? Our heritage as Christians, I think it's important for us to realize, does not begin in Matthew, but it begins in Genesis. It doesn't begin in the New Testament, but all the way back to the Old Testament. And I was thinking about it this week and we live in a day, and we all, I think, are keenly aware of this. We live in a day of communication and information that is 
instant and constant. I mean, we have all kinds of information available to us literally at our fingertips. I mean, we have what you know, generations in just a few years past look at as supercomputers in our pockets. I mean, we have our iPhones or our smartphones, and I mean, these are amazing machines that process information at a, at a, at a crazy speed and have all sorts of capabilities. Um, you know, and, and as we consider that, it's our computers, our iPhones, our iPads, media outlets, I mean, through whatever medium we can think of, we're receiving, constantly receiving information, and we have access to look up whatever information we want. If you were to open the Safari app on my iPhone, I have 100 plus tabs of open pages on there, things that I was hearing about, someone told me about, or I read about, and I want to look it up and get some more information. So I look it up, read about it, come back to it later, or email it to myself. And I'm that kind of person. I'm like an information fact event hoarder, right? From history to physics to biology. I mean, just whatever is interesting, you can just type it in and look it up. It's the same thing with news. I'm sure many of you lately have been on your news app a lot. It seems like there's new news that we need to hear being pumped out daily and even seems like on an hourly basis. And we're all keen to know what's going on. What has the government said? What's the new numbers on the coronavirus? How many people are infected? How many people have died? But locally, what's that like? I mean, we're all very interested in being updated on these things. And we open up your iPhone, your news app, and you have hundreds of different options to choose from. They're all going to report the news. And I think oftentimes we open up our app and we're flipping through the news and we flip through headline after headline until something catches our eye and intrigues us and we go and read it. Okay, overall, I, I think it's the information age is, is a good thing. I think there's a lot of benefit from it. But I will say this. I think sometimes we're conditioned, because of all of that, we're conditioned in a way to, we then come to the Bible and particularly in this context, we're looking at in 1 Peter, particularly we come to the Old Testament, and I think sometimes we read it like that. We read it like we read our news app, right? or like we're looking up some quick information on our cell phones. We kind of glaze over the top, and maybe we come to some crazy stories here and there. If we've, maybe if you're new to the Old Testament, or you're a newer Christian, or you haven't just really dug into all the content of the Old Testament, you come across some pretty crazy stories at first glance, right? I mean, you see talking snakes, and you see manna coming down from heaven, floods that cover the whole earth, talking donkeys, giants, fighting little shepherd boys. I mean, you see a lot of crazy stuff. And without knowing how to navigate through all of it, it can be quite confusing, especially if we're just reading it like we read our news app. Or we'll come to laws, like in the second half of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and we'll see all these laws, these do's and don'ts. It's like, well, I heard my pastor talk about grace and how we're saved by grace and how Jesus died to save us in grace, but now I see these laws. What do I do with these? I see dietary restrictions and wardrobe restrictions, all these ceremonies and sacrifices. What do I do with all that? And I think sometimes it we're reading the Old Testament kind of quickly like a magazine or like a news app and it can be confusing and it can seem really disconnected and distant and just not relevant or having any bearing on our life, on our thinking, on who we are. It doesn't seem like it's something we really need. In addition, there's a lot of Bible teachers that with great intentions but haven't really 
taught through the Old Testament in a way that's very helpful. Some folks just avoid the Old Testament altogether. Maybe they think it's confusing for people or it's strange or maybe they think I don't know it that well and so I don't want to teach through it. Uh, Some don't teach through books of the Bible and so they just pick verses here and there and just teach thematically all the time. I'm not saying thematic sermons are always bad, but when that's all we're doing, we just have verses here and there from the Old Testament. We never really get any context. We never really understand the content. We're kind of just cherry-picking verses that we like, and we never really get a full picture of how the Bible works and how it's connected and the threads that run through the entirety of Scripture. Uh, Some turn the Old Testament and teach kind of moralistic Here's some good guys, some of the good things they did, do those good things. Here's some bad things they did, don't do those bad things. And that's that. There's the Bible study. And so I think what we're, for us, our, our, us being conditioned how we are by culture, but then also how we've been trained, I think, in listening to some Bible teaching, we're really not very well equipped, oftentimes, to understand how to work through the Bible in general, but I think the Old Testament in particular, and we can jump in being faithful Christians thinking, I'm just going to do this, and we jump in, and we can just get lost. We don't know where to go. We don't know where to start, and we don't know how to work through it once we're there, and it can be kind of discouraging. But as we come to the New Testament, and particularly the books like First Peter, Peter uses a lot of Old Testament references and allusion and illustration, as you'll see as we go through his book. We come to books like First Peter, And he says, and wants to encourage us and point out for us the fact that the Old Testament is not irrelevant, that the Old Testament is not just a bunch of disconnected stories and old antiquated tales and we don't really need it and it has no bearing on our life. In fact, he says the opposite. He says to understand the New Testament, we need the Old Testament, that it's actually essential for Christians, for God's people to consume in terms of their diet of receiving and feeding on God's word that we need to, to be cons- that we need to consume the entirety of Scripture, the whole counsel of God's word. Right, a couple things we need to understand about Scripture. Number one, all of Scripture is God's revelation. Right, the whole of the Bible is God's revelation. Second Timothy three sixteen says it this way: All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Right? All of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of Scripture is, liter- is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God. All of Scripture is all about God. All of Scripture is all from God. All of Scripture is all of God, and it's all profitable, and it's all helpful, and all useful and necessary for God's people to know Him, love Him, worship Him, and to be trained and equipped in righteousness. All right, so just underlying principle, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is useful and good and necessary for God's people. As we open up the Old Testament and, and the, New, the, the whole of Scripture, we, we'll certainly notice there's, there's, there's a lot of variety. There's different genres. Right? There's law, there's poetry, there's history, there's prophecy in the Old Testament. That's how your, the Old Testament is broken up by genre. There's different genres, different styles, right? different literary styles and methods and tools that the authors use as the scripture they're penning is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then as well, some things are really simple. Right? If you open up to the book of Proverbs, 
you'll see really simple bite-sized kind of soundbite truths, super practical wisdom, really applicable to life. But some stuff is more complicated. You open up to Isaiah and you start reading it and you feel like you've been dropped into the middle of the ocean at night and it's raining and there's a storm, there's big waves and you're drowning and you just don't know what to do, right? Sometimes some of those major prophets and other books can, can be challenging in that way. But nonetheless, all of it, simple, complex, it's all deeply profound and it's all God's word and it's all his revelation about him, from him, and it's all necessary for God's people to feed off of on a consistent basis. So all scripture is God's revelation. But in addition, and this is where Peter's going this morning, is that all scripture in the Old Testament, in this context, the Old Testament encourages and confirms our faith. The Old Testament encourages and confirms our faith. As we read through scripture, as we read through the Old Testament, man, Peter's Goal here is to encourage us and to confirm our faith by considering the entirety of God's Word. The Old Testament is not lots of disconnected stories, but it's ultimately one story. Right? It's the story of our spiritual family history. It's the story of our spiritual family origins and how our spiritual family progressed over history and how God led us along. I say us because we are in solidarity and connection, the same spiritual family as Old Testament Christians, how God led our family along and how God progressively revealed himself to his people. Right? He unfolds the history of redemption throughout the Old Testament over different times, different seasons, and different characters. But all of it ultimately is working toward and pointing forward to one time and one season and one character, ultimately. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he is who the Old Testament is ultimately pointing forward to and anticipating and waiting for. And here's what Peter says. He says that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that is in us, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Okay, so they're writing and predicting the sufferings of Christ, and Peter says that it's the Holy Spirit that's working in them to predict these things. Peter's going to say later in his epistle, he's going to say, the things that we told you, we didn't make up. They're not just cleverly invented myths. We're not just writing down stuff that we like, creating this new religion. God actually came to earth, and the people that witnessed that, the Holy Spirit empowers them and inspires what they write Right, that point forward to him. In the Old Testament, as folks are waiting for Jesus to come, he used prophets and inspired their writings that predicted what Jesus would do, who he would be, how he would be born, and some of the things that he would do in vivid detail. And Peter says the Holy Spirit is the author of that. He's ultimately the one working in and through the human authors inspiring scripture and what they write all points to Jesus. And it particularly points to Jesus' suffering and his glories. That's what Peter says here. What person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That all ultimately, all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and in specific, his suffering and how he died as a suffering servant 
how he would be crucified, all of that, and then further his glories, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne, and his return as well, when he will return. We're still waiting for that one day where he will return and save his people. That is what the Old Testament is pointing forward to. And you'll notice as you open up the Old Testament, it, it, it begins first with God as creator, right? with God as creator, that Genesis 1 reveals to us that God is the creator of all, that he is a good creator, a loving creator. He creates the whole universe, and then he creates man and woman. He creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he creates them in love. He creates them to be in right relationship with him. He creates them to know him and to worship him and to reflect him. They're image bearers. The Bible says that human beings are image bearers of God. And the main thing that that means is as God has dominion and authority and rule over all creation, that man is to have dominion and authority and rule over earth. And man is to reflect something of who God is on earth as he has rule over it. He's to reflect the ultimate dominion of God. So God creates Adam and Eve to do that and to be with him and to know him. As you know, Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God and sinned against God. They did what they wanted to do and not what God told them to do. They broke fellowship with God and broke connection with God. All right? God could have destroyed them. God could have let them die out and started over. He did neither of those things. In fact, right away, though God was sinned against, though they rebelled against their good father, and they were now disconnected, God nonetheless pursued them. And God nonetheless began enacting his plan of redemption. Ultimately, he, he, his desire was to, and ended up accomplishing, to bring man back to himself, right? to reconcile man back to God. So God immediately starts pursuing the man and the woman. That's Genesis 1 through 3. God creates, he creates good. Man is created good. Man rebels. God begins to pursue. As Genesis 1 through 3, the rest of the Old Testament then is the unfolding of that plan. Okay, it's, it, it's the unfolding of God's plan to redeem and reconcile man back into the family of God. That's what God's working towards and unfolding and unveiling as we make progress through the Old Testament. This plan then, God's plan, ultimately is culminated and realized in the person of Jesus. Jesus' birth, life, Death, resurrection is the pinnacle of the history of redemption. God literally became a man in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes to earth as fully God and fully man, and he lives the life as a man. Right? He's really tempted. He really suffers. He really gets hungry. He really experiences everything that we experience, except without sin. Where Adam, the first man, failed Jesus, the new Adam, he succeeds. Jesus lives a perfect life in our place, a life that we should live that we cannot live because we are infected by sin and our debt of sin is too big for us to ever repay and our lives are unholy. So Jesus comes and lives a holy life and a righteous life and a perfect life before God, obeying God, worshiping God. Jesus ministers on earth. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He, he reveals God. He shows everybody who God is. He himself is God in the flesh and then he dies he dies. That debt that we have that we can never pay back of sin, God's wrath is over us because we've stored up debt against him. And Jesus goes and pays that debt on the cross. He pays for all of it. 
the wrath of God is literally dispensed, poured out on Jesus, and he absorbs the whole wrath of God and satisfies it in its entirety. It, that's Jesus' sufferings. And then Jesus was buried, and, and then he rises from death by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit to newness of life, conquering death. Right? He rises in a glorified body. It's completely new, indestructible life. And then he ascends. You can read this in Acts 1. He then ascends to the throne at the right hand of the Father and empowers his leaders and his church to continue his ministry as the Holy Spirit now empowers us to do his ministry here on earth. And one day Jesus, as we said, will return in glory for his people. Okay, Jesus did all of that. He fulfilled, in doing so, he fulfilled and accomplished all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. He fulfilled and accomplished all of it. We then, this side of the cross, A.D., we then, as we look back to the Old Testament, we see through the lens of the gospel and the finished work of Christ. We see through that lens. We don't see the Old Testament any longer as incomplete, still waiting for fulfillment, but rather we look back and we see this has been fulfilled. These prophecies have been realized. Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, has actually, has actually come. We see that all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and specifically predicted these exact events. And friends, that ought to confirm, encourage, and bolster our faith. It really ought to. That ought to confirm, encourage, and bolster our faith. Friends, there is no book that compares to this book. There, there just isn't. I invite you to read the other religious texts and see what they have to say. There is no book that compares to this one. There's no other book that's written by God. Some of the things, and we'll look at a few in a moment. I'm going to give you a few examples. I mean, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in this book that point towards and describe in vivid detail who Jesus would be, what he would do, what that would be like, what he would accomplish, specific details. And he accomplished all of it. He fulfilled all of it. I'm going to give you a few examples. From the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, from the very beginning, God is preaching the gospel. Genesis 3.15 says this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The man and the woman have just sinned against God. The serpent had tempted them. And God says to the serpent, he curses the serpent. He says to the serpent, there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. Ultimately, this is pointing forward to the fact that Jesus will be born of a woman. We know Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus in Genesis 3.15, is predicted to come from the woman and that the woman's offspring and Satan's offspring, those who are his progeny who follow in his footsteps, will always be at odds, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and that Jesus will come from the woman, that the serpent will bruise his heel because of sin that entered the world through Satan's deception. Jesus will now die. He'll bruise his heel, but, but through that death, death and his resurrection, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Hey, this is the earliest preaching of the gospel that's done by God right after the man and the woman sin against God. Jesus' birth is given to us hundreds of years before it actually occurs. Micah 5.2. 
Micah says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, because, or rather, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem was a little nothing kind of village country town. And Micah acknowledges that. He says, you're a little town, but you know what? From you is going to come the one who's going to rule. That's the Messiah. From you is going to come the one whose real origins are from ancient days, literally from eternity. Jesus, who is eternal God, never created, did come to earth. He is reigning and ruling, and he will return to reign and rule on earth, ultimately, for a period of time at least. And that's what Micah is saying. That God, that Messiah, will come from you, Bethlehem. Jesus, as we know, was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that Jesus will be born from a virgin. The Messiah will be born from a virgin. This is 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God became a man, was born of a virgin, and God, the God-man, entered human history, and came to be with us through miraculous conception of a virgin. Jesus' crucifixion is prophesied a thousand years before it occurs. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. The psalmist says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Literally describing the mode of his execution pierced to the hands and the feet, not only before Jesus was crucified, but before crucifixion even existed. He says, I can count all my bones, meaning he didn't break any. Jesus was tortured brutally and killed, but he didn't break any bones. That was prophesied. He says that these soldiers, these Evildoers are are take they've taken my garments, they're dividing my garments and, and gambling for them. That's exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross. All fun and games, just another guy we're crucifying. Let's gamble over his clothing, see who gets these souvenirs. Well, this was all prophesied a thousand years before it ever occurred. Isaiah 53, 3-5, through five, and really the whole chapter, but here's just a few verses on the suffering servant, 700 years before the life of Christ. And Isaiah says this, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, just too horrific to look at. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies just like these. Of Jesus in the Old Testament pointing forward, predicting, foretelling what he would do, what the effect would be all kinds of different details. Who would betray him, how he would be betrayed, the amount of money that he would be betrayed with. This is not to mention all of the glories that Peter talks about, his resurrection. You can read Psalm 16, I think Psalm 49 for that. 
his resurrection, his ascension, his return. I mean, it's riddled all throughout the Old Testament. All right, what we understand as we read through Scripture and as we read through the Old Testament, we see our brothers and sisters, the saints of old, who lived during those Old Testament times, they looked forward in faith to Jesus. They had an anticipatory faith. They're saved in the same way, by grace, through faith in Jesus, but they're looking forward. We, friends, are on this side of the cross, and we look back in faith. They looked forward in faith. We look back in faith at what's already been accomplished. We look back at God's plan accomplished and the predictions of God's plan in vivid detail. And friends, this ought to encourage, enliven, bolster, and confirm our faith. It ought to confirm our faith. Maybe you've had doubts about your faith and what you believe and is the Bible real? Is it reliable? Maybe you've had personal struggles or some sort of suffering or pain or letdown and you're questioning God and is he true and is he good? I just want to encourage you, friends, go back and and read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament as well, but read the Old Testament. You can see our faith being confirmed You can see how God sovereignly is working in time and history that as we now look back through the gospel lens, we see this confirms what I believe. And for all Christians, for us as Union Church, I I just want to exhort you, read your Old Testaments. Read your Old Testaments. All right, don't avoid it. Don't skip around. Nothing wrong with skipping around sometimes, but, but overall, friends, read your Old Testaments. Read your Old Testaments. Peter, as I told you, is going to go back to the Old Testament quite a bit, and we're going to learn some from that. We're going to see some allusions there, and we're going to learn some Old Testament history and just how it connects to what Peter's trying to teach us. But we also must do it ourselves. We must read ourselves. Okay, We have a Bible reading plan on the website. You can download that. It takes you through the Bible in a year, a few chapters a day, some in the old, some in the new. If you don't know where to start, I would just say start there. Start there. Start with the Bible reading plan and begin to make your way through the Old Testament. In our one-on-one discipleship, we talk about the Old Testament. The discipleship manual that we have that we work through in our discipleship program for guys and for gals, we learn about the Old Testament, how the Bible is structured, how the Old Testament connects to the New how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, all of those sorts of things. Man, I, I know we can't gather even in small groups right now, but I would just say get together with some friends, read through an Old Testament book, get on Zoom and talk about it. Man, bottom line is this, we need to be in our Bibles, New Testament for sure, but also the Old. And I just want to encourage you, friends, read the Old Testament. You will grow in your faith. You will be encouraged. You will learn more about God, more about you, more about your salvation. We must be in the Old Testament. I think it's easy for us right now to get kind of swamped in this in the craziness of this moment in history. And I think it's really good for us to take a step back and take a step out Right? and get the, the, the big vision of what God has done and is doing in history. See, the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years, different continents, different languages, by 40-plus, more than that, authors. Um, as we read all of that, we see, man, the way that God is sovereign over time and history doesn't take away from our situation now, but it gives us a right perspective on it. 
we can get immersed in the craziness of the moment of history we're in, and it's just good for us to realize God is so sovereign over all time and all history and our time right now and our day and coronavirus in 2020 and our isolation. God's sovereign over all of it. And getting that big picture of God by reading Scripture and understanding how He's worked in history helps us do that. It also helps us understand our identity in Christ. We are in solidarity with Old Testament saints, and our faith doesn't begin in Matthew. It begins in Genesis. It doesn't begin when Jesus was born. It begins long before that. Number two, your family privilege. Peter draws a connection between us and the Old Testament Christians, New Testament and the Old Testament, and really he wants to connect that for us. He wants to show us, help us see some of our family origins, how they faithfully were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and they had their faith in the coming Messiah. Okay, so we, we see that. But further, Peter now also wants to show us, Christians living right now, this side of the cross, he wants to show us our unique and privileged position. And he wants to draw out for us our unique and privileged position. He wants to show us our family privilege, Christians living in this day and age, and how unique that is. Peter's audience that he was writing to in the first century, like us today, we were not looking, we're not looking forward to the cross. Again, we're looking back at the cross. We're looking back at the cross. And here's Peter's goal for us looking back at the cross. His goal is that we, as God's people, would rejoice in our privileged position, that we'd rejoice. That we've been placed in time and history on the AD side of the cross, and we have the full picture of salvation and the full picture of redemption. And friends, not every Christian who's ever lived has had that full picture. Those who lived on the BC side of the cross had a partial picture. This is what Peter says in verse 12. The prophets, they prophesied, they inquired carefully, and the Spirit was working in them. Now, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter's goal is that we would rejoice as those in this privileged position. You know, you'll recall that Peter's writing to people, to Christians who are kind of scattered all over this region. And they've left their homes, many of them. They're kind of sojourners in the lands that they're in. And they're in a low place. Socially, they're not thought well of. They're Christians, and they're not worshiping the pagan gods and doing the pagan practices, so the pagans think they're weird and are kind of ignoring them isolated from them. They're punishing them economically. They're having a hard time getting businesses started, getting commerce going. They're facing a rough time. They're facing trials and challenges, isolation. Many of us right now in this day, in this season, are facing a super hard time. All of us to some degree are isolated, cooped up, discouraged, Maybe some financial tolls. I've talked to several of you, and it's like you're not sure what the job's going to look like in the next couple of weeks. Some of you are now out of a job. 
This is a difficult time for many. A lot of parallels with us in Peter's day. Friends, Peter wants to give us something to rejoice in. Not just something, not just anything. Peter wants to give us the thing to rejoice in, the main thing to rejoice over. Peter wants to remind us of our privileged position in the history of redemption and the salvation that we've received and the fullness of the picture that we get to understand from Scripture and all that Jesus has accomplished. And the first thing he tells us is that our privilege is greater than Old Testament Christians. Our privilege is greater than Old Testament Christians. Again, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. The prophets who prophesied and the Old Testament Christians that were looking forward to Jesus and those who wrote it all down, they realized they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. They were serving us. Now, we need to be clear on this. Their salvation was not different from ours. Our salvation is not better than theirs. We're all saved by grace through faith. We're all saved by the work of Christ. They're saved by looking forward. We're saved by looking back. The salvation is not different. But the time in which we live as Christians has far more privilege and is filled with far more blessings than theirs was. Wayne Grudem says this in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, The purpose of these verses is to show Peter's readers that the spiritual blessings they now have are greater than anything that was envisioned by the Old Testament prophets or even by angels. Thus, Peter seeks to increase his readers' appreciation for their great salvation in Christ. That's exactly what he's trying to do. In verses 10 through 11, he says, The prophets, they searched and inquired carefully, diligently on this salvation that was to come, on the person, on the time. It's like they're straining into what they're writing. They don't have a full picture of it. They don't fully understand it. They know the major things. They know a Messiah is coming. They trust that. They believe that. But they don't have a full picture. Verse 12 Peter says, it was revealed to them as they were writing and as they were seeking and as they were searching and as they were predicting that the things they were writing about wasn't a service in the time, at least at the time. It wasn't a service for them, but for us. They realized at some point, it was revealed to them at some point, this isn't going to happen in my lifetime. The things that I'm writing about, the things that God's telling me, the things that God is predicting These are for another generation. These are for brothers and sisters of the future. The Old Testament prophets did not live to see the fulfillment of their predictions. They did not live in the day where all their predictions were realized. But friends, we do live in that day. We do live in that day. We live in the day where all of it has been fulfilled. We live in the day where all of the predictions about the suffering servant have been fully realized. Where all of the predictions about the salvation that God will deliver have been accomplished. They saw in part, but we have the privilege of knowing the completed work of the gospel. 
It has been finished. Peter says, announced to us. We have the full picture. The, the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, their ministry in part was a ministry of service. That's what Peter's saying. The Holy Spirit worked in them to prophesy, to write, to preach. But ultimately, their ministry was one of service. In doing their prophetic ministry, they were serving you and I. This is exactly what Peter says. So when you read the Old Testament, think Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the myriad of other ones. Their ministry was of service to you and I. Moses was used by God as a prophet to serve us. Jeremiah was a prophet who was used to serve us by faithfully preaching, faithfully writing. Now we read scripture and we benefit. We know God better through what they did through their ministry. That was a service to us. We are privileged participants of their ancient ministry, one author says. Verse 12, Peter says that this news, this gospel, what they prophesied has now been completed, accomplished, and it's been announced to us in full. Peter says it this way, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Friends, these things have been announced. They've been completed, and now they've been announced through preaching to us. The, event, the prophets predicted, the evangelists preached it. Friends, we need to know this. The gospel is the most precious. The gospel is the greatest treasure. The gospel should be our greatest desire. The finished work of Jesus Christ was the thing that these prophets searched for, sought after, carefully inquired after, desired and longed for. And I just want to ask, what about us? They were eager with every fiber of their being to see and know the full picture of salvation. We have the full picture. That's what they desired to see. Is it what we desire? I know many of us know the gospel is good news, but it seems like sometimes we treat the gospel like it's old news. I'm used to it. I've heard it. Um, I love the gospel. You know, we appreciate it, but we're not too excited about it. It's another part of the sermon. You can need to hear the gospel in the sermon. Love the gospel, but, but we become accustomed to it. I'm not saying it needs to thrill us every time we hear it. We need to get all giddy and excited. But we do need to desire it and treasure it and long for it. Right, when you first start dating a person, a person will become your spouse in the first part of your relationship, you have, you have a certain right, emotional high all the time. And that's a good thing. That doesn't last forever. 20 years down the road, you're not constantly going to feel the same way you do in the first six months of dating. That's a good thing. You'd never get anything done. But though that emotional high is not always there, your love, hopefully, and God's intention is that your love would deepen, your desire would deepen, that your care would deepen. Okay? We're not in a romantic relationship with the gospel, but I think you get the picture. When we first become Christians, we're excited and just... And sometimes the emotional excitement might wear off a little bit, 
but our love and desire and commitment to the gospel ought to grow ever stronger. It ought to grow ever stronger. Friends, I'm just going to suggest this. May we repent for taking the gospel for granted. May we repent for not desiring the gospel and treasuring the gospel. May we repent for being apathetic toward the gospel. May we repent for not announcing the gospel to others. And may we actively seek to know, hear, love, treasure, and cling to the gospel. It's not just another part of the sermon. Check the box. There the gospel is. As long as it's there, it's all good. We're just got to make sure it's in there. It's not just a check mark. The gospel is our life. It's where we receive life. It's where others who you know who are lost, where they can receive life as well. The gospel is the sum and substance of our identity in Christ. Our privilege is greater than the Old Testament saints. In addition, our privilege, we have a greater privilege than even angels. Verse 12 It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen, things into which angels long to look. We have a greater privilege than angels. Now you might hear that and think, how in the world do we have a greater privilege than angels? I mean, I've read the Bible. Angels are pretty awesome. They're pretty awesome. It's like angels can kill hundreds of thousands of people with one foul swoop. Angels are mighty and magnificent and beautiful and glorious. I mean, how do we have a greater position than angels? When we see people in in the Bible, when they're encountered with the naked glory of an angel, they often fall down terrified, unable to speak. The Apostle John, the Apostle John, who was with Jesus for years as an old man who's been a Christian for a long time, he's written books of the Bible, and now he's writing Revelation, he's getting these visions from Jesus. And he, the Apostle John sees an angel in all of its magnificence, and he, his, 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 his knee-jerk impulse is to fall down and worship it because it's so magnificent. Now, John has good theology. John's not an idolater, but the sight of the angel was so stunning that his impulse is to fall on his face and worship, and the angel says, no, no, get up. I'm not God. But that's the sort of thing we see when man encounters an angel. So we can say, how is our position greater than angels? They are, they are far superior to us, functionally at least. How is our privilege greater than that of angels? They are glorious and strong and magnificent. And all of that. And yet, Peter says, as they observe all God has done in the gospel... And as they observe, man, you and I, as recipients of the gospel of grace, Peter says that they desire, they gaze, they look intently, they long to see, they long to see, they long to know about the gospel and to see the gospel at work and to see men and women receive the gospel, to see the gospel being announced. There's a verse in one of the gospels that I think where Jesus says, Every time a sinner repents, angels throw a party. Think about that. Every time one sinner repents, angels celebrate. I mean, they're longing for this. Well, why? What? Why? What what does Peter mean here when he says these are things which angels long to look into? 
Obviously, they're excited about God's work. Obviously, they're, they're pumped to see sinners repent. But what is this longing, this desire, this curiosity? Well, Jesus says this in Luke 7. He's think, finishing a parable and paraphrasing here, but he basically says, he who's been forgiven much loves much. He who's been forgiven much loves much. Angels know God, they love God, they delight in Jesus, they have joy in the service of God. But friends, angels, unlike man, have never been forgiven of anything. Angels, unlike us, have never had any sin to be forgiven of. Angels have never experienced the grace of God's pursuit, the grace of redemption, the grace of reconciliation, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of a new birth, the grace of being made alive, the grace of being cleansed, the grace of being washed, the grace of receiving a new identity. They've never experienced any of that. They haven't been forgiven of anything. And the angels who fell, who followed Satan in his rebellion... There's no option of redemption for them. They're gladly following Satan. The angels that were faithful to God, they've never been forgiven of anything. They've never experienced any of the aspects of redemption or salvation. But we, friends, have. We as fallen, sinful, rebellious man, we have been pursued by God. We have been pursued with redeeming love. We have been pursued in reconciliation. We have received the grace of forgiveness from all our transgressions, not because of anything that we have done to earn God's favor, not because of how moral we are or how little we feel we've sinned or how much better we are than other people, not because we've kept a set of rules, but because Jesus came and lived and died and paid for our sin, pursued us in love, and now we respond in repentance and faith. That is the gospel. And that is what we as fallen man have received. That's what we live in. That's what we walk in. That's what we live on. We've been brought back into God's family recipients of the fullness of the gospel of grace. And here's the result. We, man, forgiven man, who's been brought into God's family, we, God's kids, have a greater capacity to love God than angels do. We have a greater capacity to love God than angels do. We've been forgiven infinite debt. We've been redeemed from the depths of sin and destruction and reconciled back to God from the family of sin and the world to the family of Of God, this is our privileged position in Christ. Sinners who have been justified, knowing, experiencing, receiving the fullness of the gospel of grace. Friends, that is our privileged position. We get the full picture. Our brothers and sisters gone before us on the BC side of the cross, they didn't have, they loved Jesus, but they didn't have the full picture. We are privileged to see the fullness of the gospel. We're more privileged than angels. We get to receive and partake in all the benefits of the gospel, the forgiveness of the gospel, the grace in the gospel. And that enables us, friends, to love God more fully and to worship him more deeply. Our stature and functionality might be less than that of angels, but our capacity to know and love God is greater. That's our privileged position. So church, I just want to encourage you, as Peter is seeking to encourage us, 
We rejoice. That's how we respond. We rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in our salvation. We're in a difficult season. We're in a crazy season. A lot of different types of challenges. But in spite of all of that, we consider who God is, what he's done in us, the privileged position that we have in him. And friends, our response ought to be one of rejoicing. Rejoicing. Rejoicing in trials, rejoicing in Jesus, rejoicing what he's done in us and to us and where he's brought us and seeking to know and treasure and cling to the gospel more desperately. I pray that we would all respond that way this week to God's word. Father God, thank you for giving us all of scripture. Thank you that all of it is profitable for us and exhorts us and encourages us and shows us you and shows us who we truly are and shows us, Lord, your grace. And I just pray for us as Union Church and all others listening and for all the other Christians and churches in our city and across the nation and across the globe, I pray that during this time we would consider our privileged position in you, recipients of the fullness of the gospel of grace, and that we would rejoice heartily in response. In your good name, amen.